Hi, this is Mel Cranenberg, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Backstory, a weekly radio show exploring books, stories, the craft of writing, and the people behind the lines. Backstory is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website, Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Independent Melbourne Radio 3 Triple R. On today's show, ghosts and gods and flying saucers, certainty in the absence of knowledge. How the stories we tell ourselves to deal with the distance between the world as it is and as we'd like it to be can stunt or save us. So begins The Believer, Encounters with Love, Death and Faith. This is the latest book by Sarah Krasnerstein, an award-winning author of The Trauma Cleaner. The book winds together six extraordinary stories of belief beyond the bounds of reason, ranging from a death doula who helps a woman die with peace and dignity, a woman facing injustice with an open heart, a ghost hunter who seeks de- definitive proof of life after death, and UFO watchers looking with wonder to the skies. All these stories and more are told through an open-hearted and humanist lens. Triple R on FM, digital, online, and via the app. Sarah Krasnerstein, welcome to Backstory. Thank you so much for having me. Now, your book, The Believer, is kind of in a way related to uh, the book that perhaps many people have read of yours, uh, The Trauma Cleaner, that is an extraordinary work that combines a little bit of memoir, um, a biography of an extraordinary woman's life, and her amazing job at cleaning houses that are on the spectrum of extremely, uh, you know, uh, crazily and terrible shape, um, handled with this great humanity. This book doesn't focus on one individual. It focuses on numerous people. It covers everything from a death doula to people who investigate UFOs, ghost busters, and a woman who has spent uh, a good chunk of her life in jail for a crime that perhaps she should never have served time for. It's an extraordinary book, and it's one that covers a core, uh, you know, theme, which is this idea of belief and the nature of it. But it is so much more than that. Sarah, I want to ask you how you embarked upon this book, because it really does, you know, it wanders through the lives and, uh, and stories of a number of stories, um, in fact. And I want to know how you sort of set out on this whole journey and how it, it wound into the story it's ultimately become. Yeah, so um, I didn't set out specifically wanting to interrogate, you know, the belief as a concept. I knew broadly that I wanted to build a house of unlike things by doing a number of stories and um, kind of uh, melding them together uh, by kind of using their correspondences and echoes across across a book-length work. So that formally had been something that I wanted to take on. Um, and these stories kind of started when I really did stumble across the um, Mennonite choir uh, in the subway station in New York City, and they looked so visually arresting. They, they look like um, Amish people. 
and they were, you know, singing this bizarre music, and there was something so strange and bizarre and compelling about it that I wanted to know more. So I, I didn't at that moment think, oh, this would be great to write about. I really just had, like, a personal curiosity need to know more. And so, you know, I spent a few months uh, visiting those families and learning about what they were doing. They were missionaries, why they did this, who they were. And then, you know, stuff that they told me led me on to the next story, which was the Creation Museum in Kentucky with these fundamentalist uh, evangelist scientists. Um, but only by kind of following those logical threads did I eventually have enough collected stories that weren't, I didn't want to, you know, sell them off as magazine pieces or collect them as, an, as essays. I wanted to try to do justice to the fact that I was hearing the same notes in each of these extremely different um, stories that eventually turned out to be, you know, this, this sense of human longing or yearning for, for things, for reality to be other than it was. So um, that became the task over the, the four years of reading, of researching and writing. I have to say, when I embarked on reading this book, I, I did it with a, a great deal of hope that actually you would come to some conclusion about uh, what belief was and how one could attain it, because uh, I think this was a real feature of my own uh, upbringing that I never felt like I had a natural belief in religion or anything else. I've been very much brought up to question everything. And yeah. I really, there were times in my life where I really have, have really be jealous of people's deep belief, particularly things like spiritual belief, that, gave, that gives them this unshakable sense of the world. I do think looking at it, with uh, looking at the world with a kind of um, eye that you are, it's very clear, though, that regardless of whether or not we all have a formal belief, almost, in, in fact, it is the human condition to believe in some form. And that certainly becomes obvious as you go throughout, throughout this. Um, I want to start with like a little comment that you make right at the, the end of the introduction. You say, one of the lies writers tell themselves is that all things should be understood. So you didn't embark upon this uh, in really understanding why it is necessarily that people believe the things that they believe, but merely in kind of going with them to find out about their experience and who they are. It's a very humanist approach to things. How have you hit upon... Um, this way of doing things? And in fact, how do you kind of really win the trust of the people that you spend so much time with uh, and, and get them to share so much, so much of themselves? Well, um, I don't know. I mean, I have mm, only one way of, of approaching people that I want to write about, and I don't really have a great deal of tricks up my sleeve. I kind of just say... <laughs> I'm a writer, I'm interested in your story. And either they're in, into it or they're not. Like, I'm not going to be uh, trying to convince anybody to talk to me. So, I mean, it does self-select, that sort of a process, self-select somebody who's willing to be open about their lives to a certain extent. Um, and, you know, I mean, it takes a lot of milk to get cream. There's uh, many instances where um, the people aren't going to give me, um, you know, not, I want to say, like, uh, the, the degree of access that I would like in order to kind of, have sufficient depth to write at the level that I, I would like to and have these conversations. So if, if somebody is willing to do that, then I'm going to be circling back, and um, mostly my interviews look like I haven't done my homework. They're not, you know, a formal Q&A 
type of deal. It's more kind of these these conversations in which I'm trying to access something in me that has felt similar to what they're describing. So we're not going to have the same life experiences. Um, and we're going to have a vastly different life experiences. If I'm doing it properly, I'm going to be very out of place and kind of feeling in the dark. But I will be trying to check in to say, you know, well, this happened to me and it made me feel like this. Is that what we're talking about? So we're getting at the same kind of emotional experiences is the ideal um, uh, kind of conversation for me. And, um, yeah, I mean, again, there's not kind of any smoking gun, big reveal, um, coming to, you know, understanding moment. But there is kind of this slowly unfurling revelation for me, it feels like at any rate, which is, you know, these problems are problems that we all experience. We all resolve them unsatisfactorily in our own way. And we can't kind of eliminate all the shitty parts of being alive, but we can ameliorate it by doing it together, by doing that hard kind of, you know, work together. So that's probably a very messy way of not answering the question. <laughs> no, no, you've answered it beautifully. <laughs> but I guess I, I want to go back to the core of that, though, because I think, uh, you know, obviously I'm preoccupied with craft. This, this entire show <laughs> is really focused on it. And so I do want to sort of ask a, a follow-up question to that about the nature of how you go about interviewing, because yeah. it is a technique, uh, whether it is one that is, it sounds very intuitive in, in the way that you're doing mm. it, which is wonderful. Uh, but, you know, long-form investigative, reporting, even though this is not necessarily investigative in the sense that you're trying to come to a, a great realisation, you're just trying to understand someone, uh, is about a, it's about spending time with people. It's about attrition. Like you're really yeah. trying to, you know, you're putting in these these hours. And I think that that's something that, that really people don't think about, this quotidian nature of journalism. It's kind of boring. You're, you're there for all <laughs> sorts of stuff. Can you talk about that? Because it is really the behind the scenes element of, um, you know, of how these things are done, the countless hours uh, that people don't necessarily understand um, if they haven't done it themselves. Yeah, well, that's exactly right. I mean, that's, um, like, if, if I'm, the books that I most enjoy reading, um, nonfiction-wise, uh, have, have duration as an element of the work. So, you know, the passage of time and its impact on character and events is itself um, an element of the storytelling, of course, uh, but it does go towards character development because you're seeing change over time. So there's some longitudinal aspects to the research and the data that you're getting, if you want to think of it in those terms. But also I just think it kind of allows um, the story to be about something that's uh, deeper. And, you know, if you look at it with a certain eye, it's almost imperceptible. But you know, it's, I guess, the difference between working to a shorter deadline and trying to do, you know, a flashier, big emotive, uh, you know, piece or something that is quieter um, and says something hopefully deeper about a human experience. So I, both my books now have taken four years with the six stories and the believer um, about, well, I think two-thirds of them, I'd say, uh, took place over a number of years, conversations over, over you know, three years. And with the scientists, that was only one week um, of interviews in Kentucky, although it felt much, much longer. But my preference is definitely kind of an ongoing relationship so that I can kind of get that depth and breadth of character that I'm looking for. 
Yeah, that's, um, I mean, it's an extraordinary uh, focus and dedication to, to do that, to, to kind of really getting to know someone in that way. And I think it is, it, you know, there are, it's a unique individual that can do that, that kind of work. Um, I do want to kind of come back to that at some point to sort of talk about why, Sarah, why do you do this? Um, but, but let's, you know, let's carry on because I want to get into the guts of what the the stories are. Uh, if you've just joined me, you're listening to Backstory on Triple R. I'm Mel Cranenberg and I'm talking to author Sarah Krasnerstein about her book, The Believer, Encounters with Love, Death and Faith. So, Sarah, you you talk about, um, you're, you're basically really covering six main sort of characters, I guess, um, or, or more than six, but six main kind of areas, let's say. Uh, and there are within that some some incredible human beings that you encounter. You name them rather beautifully in each of the sections by their first name. And the one that uh, really engages us first um, is Annie, the, the death doula, and yeah. her, um, you know, the woman that she is working with who is dying, Katrina. Uh, I want to talk about, uh, I want you to talk about Annie, if you will, um, what it is that she does, um, what's her story, and, you know, and, you know, what do you kind of discover as you, as you grow to learn about her? Yeah, so Annie, uh, as you mentioned, is a death doula, which I had no idea uh, existed as a profession. I knew that uh, birth doulas existed. Uh, and, and I guess they just do the reverse of that. So they are there at end of life to help people die, and it's a very flexible range of um, services or skills that they have. They can do everything from kind of literal hand-holding uh, to more administrative, bureaucratic tasks, liaising with the hospital, liaising with the funeral directors, um, to more emotional work, keeping away certain family members, creating a space and holding that space for the person as they're dying. Um, and so in that way, they're kind of these intimate strangers, at, you know, a, a humongous life moment. Uh, I spoke to a number of death doors before I met Annie and decided that that was the one who I'd like to concentrate on. And that was because, you know, her work was really the least interesting part about her, even though it was an extremely interesting facet. Um, and her, the life that she had led was just astonishing. She had been through so much personal trauma and grief, and she had come out the other end. She's in her late 60s. Um, and kind of used it at the service of this remarkable profession and this remarkable kind of openness to the world as it was. So, you know, each of these stories I, I think of as sitting on kind of a, a spectrum of rationality with certain stories at one end, like the creationist scientists, and Annie um, and some others sitting at the other uh, end, and I was hearing again and again and again all of these stories that people tell themselves, as I do and we all do, I suspect, uh, to kind of make the, uh, again, the shitty parts of being alive more bearable, that gap between what we want in our life and what we're going to get. What was different with Annie um, at her end of the spectrum was that her story was spacious enough to include include all those shitty parts. She didn't need to rationalize them away. She didn't have, you know, anything that was going to make it better, but she was able to kind of tolerate sitting next to all of this fear and all this sorrow and grief and really kind of dance with it in a way that was so skilled and practiced and kind and joyful. And she's just a remarkable person to 
be around. So um, the story is Annie's life, but also uh, her work with what she doesn't call them clients or patients, just one of the women that she had <clears throat> was helping to die, Katrina. Um, and, you know, that relationship and Katrina's story as she through her own living wake and then had the death that she wanted. So it was really a privilege to be covering that story, but I think it was the most difficult thing I've, I've written so far. Yeah, I, I do want you to talk about Katrina, but I just want to pick up on something that you said about, um, you know, your focus really was not on what she did or does. It is yeah. to to a great extent, but but more on who she is as a person, her own life story. You've also done this in the trauma cleaner to yeah. extraordinary effect. Uh, you know, I, I know um, certainly having spoken with you about that book, but also reading the book, it's very clear that, that, you know, there was an obvious angle in that book, which is the work that this person does is just amazingly yeah. um, fascinating. And yet the person behind it was the most fascinating. This Great humanism that you have, I think, is one of the, the really very attractive features of your work. In fact, it is the reason that I think people are so drawn to your work, is that you have this this real focus on the human being behind things. There's never a sense that you're kind of um, stepping in and, and being ironic or, um, you know, uh, trying to poke fun at what someone thinks. You're really getting to know people um, throughout this I mean, you have kind of talked about that, I guess, when you're you're discussing your interviews. But but is that is that something that is a core tenet of your of your process or your understanding of the world? Well, I think at, at this length, like at, at a book length, I, I'm not really interested in you know spending this much time thinking about something uh, for the purposes of making fun of it. I mean, humor definitely has its place and, you know, can be employed for many reasons. Um, but I think that kind of distancing effect of looking at something, you know, ironically or mockingly doesn't really suit what I've wanted to do today, which is really try to see the world through someone else's eyes. So I'm still trying to exercise uh, discernment or, or judgment and, you know, and I have to because, you know, I write nonfiction, so the promise to my readers is that I'm portraying what I believe to be true, and if I'm hearing something from the person themselves that I, I don't think is true, I have to make that clear. But I think that the point is, is not to, like, you know, um, you know, shoot them down or disprove something they're saying about their own life. It's more to say, to see, you know, like I said, the world through their eyes, and, and there's always something there that is, I think, worthwhile. So, um, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, I don't, you know, if it, if it comes across in a, a non judgmental way, then I think I've done my work. Yes, you absolutely um, have. Yeah, yes. I would use humor, or definitely, like if someone's dangerous and, and worth being mocked, then, you know, maybe in a shorter piece, I would definitely do that. But that's not, yeah, what I've done so far. Now, let's talk about Katrina, because I could really feel mm. in that writing that, that this was this was very much affecting you. Um, it certainly, I think, is affecting readers. I know you, I mean, not to say for a second that you didn't perform your duties as a, um, you know, as a writer in, in creating a, um, a piece around this, but it was a very affecting part of this book. Um, can you talk about that part of the book and, uh, and what it meant to you? Yeah, so, I mean, like, understandably, it took a while uh, 
for Annie and I to find somebody who she was helping who wanted to use their limited remaining time to speak to me. Um, But Katrina was very enthusiastic about it. Uh, She wanted people, well, she wanted to help people by providing her own experience as an example. And, you know, she was nearly 60. She was, you know, suffering from the cancer that would ultimately kill her. And she wanted to have an unmedicated death at home, which is mm, a million times harder than it sounds because it's a very frightening thing. Our system is not set up to allow um, us to die at home with ease. And uh, she had hired Annie to help her meet that goal. And, you know, I spoke to her a number of times um, at her home and in palliative care hospice um, before she did die. And it was just, I really, to use the word, it was a holy thing to be that close to somebody who had that much personal agency and power and bravery. And I didn't expect that it would be as confronting as it was, mostly because I had been talking to Annie about this for, I think, nearly two years at that point. But only by seeing Annie in action in that space where somebody is dying and speaking to somebody about their own experience in those moments um, did I realize, you know, there is nothing separating that from me and all of us, and yet nobody talks about this. Um, in any real sense or as frequently as it is required. So, you know, it's funny, again, that spectrum of rationality of the stories in this book. We may uh, have reasonable uh, reasonable minds can differ about ghosts and UFOs. And, you know, again, I'm not mocking those stories, but people have, you know, spoken to me in a, in a laughing way about those those beliefs. But, you know, any of us going home today could have a car accident and find ourselves in Katrina's position um, or, you know, see a doctor and be in Katrina's position, and we don't talk about what's going to happen then or what we would like to happen then. So we do have these, you know, cognitive dissonances that we're not willing to acknowledge. And so, again, Katrina's view was so relevant for all of us. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R, exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. I want to talk about the structure of the book first because it is a really interesting approach that you've decided to take. Uh, it, I have to say, at first, it did sort of, you know, leave me going. I want to know more straight away. I want to know more straight away. But, but as I went throughout the book, um, I started to kind of follow the beats as you, as you kind of allowed us into them, um, winding together these stories, and and it kind of really did give this sort of sense of overlap between them. Can you talk about the structure, how you hit on it, and what you hope to achieve with it? Yes. Yeah, so I, I wondered, like I said, I think earlier about building a house of um, unlike things. And um, it's precisely because these stories are on their surface very different stories, completely different stories, that weaving them together, braiding them together, um, has the effect that I was hoping for, um, well, for some people at least, maybe not so much for others, but that's fine, um, which was kind of 
choral in nature. So like that Mennonite choir, which sounded jarringly um, unfamiliar to me and at the same time quite beautiful, which I would not have expected of that music, I wanted to use a form that had room to draw out the commonalities between these stories. They're all talking about human vulnerability in the face of grief and distance and injustice and illness and fear. Um, The stories that we kind of build around our, our difficulty with each of those intractable parts of being alive, but they're doing it in very different ways. So I wanted to have a form that kind of drew out those commonalities but also made space for the differences. So you're having those contrasting elements and those kind of corresponding elements. And at the level of form or technique, um, to me anyway, I was trying to have a technique that mirrored the meaning of the book, which was, well, we can't all agree on, you know, the facts that move the world, but we could come up with a dialogue that allows us to have our differences and, you know, stand together in, in, the, in the common parts of being human. So uh, that's, again, a long way of probably not answering your question. No. Oh, no, it's, it's yeah. wonderful. And I was thinking, you know, Maria Tamark in, in Axiomatic is sort of doing a, a similar thing where, you know, stories that have a likeness in a sense are sort of brought together even though they don't have a direct relationship with one another. You know, these ideas yeah. of us creating stories and that they are creations, in fact, yeah. it becomes very apparent then at the same time as, as kind of giving us this idea of a shared humanity, which I think is very is starkly kind of, um, you know, uh, shown by this, this approach. So I think it's actually really if effective. Um, and again, you know, any kind of early sort of jarring um, element to it is, is quickly sort of taken over by that sense um, that actually you're in a world of people with, with great difference and yet great, you know, great similarity. Um, it's, it's a very effective technique. Yeah, it is. I want to talk about um, some of the other kind of characters and and areas in this book. I feel like we're not, you know, we've got, you know, quite a bit of time, but not nearly enough time to get under the skin of everything. So I'm going to touch on a few. Uh, I want to talk about just very quickly Vlad, the ghost hunter. I was particularly taken with one thing um, that he said and couldn't get out of my mind, and that was. the, the fact that he seemed like a bit of a sceptic, really, um, about the whole thing and yet wasn't at all. Um, he had this this sort of, I don't really mostly notice any paranormal stuff, um, but then does notice some, but is a bit almost sceptical about it. Um, he also sort of talked about the nature of dark matter and how he thought that that was a little bit of a furphy because actually it was too much Mm. like religion because it's this great unknowable thing well beyond our conception, you know, this idea that we can only perceive 3% of what actually is and the rest of it is this this dark matter and um, that we can't, you know, really actually understand And and he found that you know, not acceptable because it wasn't, it was too much of a belief-based thing and he wanted something that was measurable. Um, I found this such an interesting paradox, um, uh, paradoxical character. There's plenty of paradox throughout this this um, work, but I think that this character in particular typifies it. Yeah, I mean, he's, um, yeah, he was delightful to me because because of that kind of 
push me, pull you. He has between a very rational sensibility and, you know, academic training. He's a neurophysiologist. Um, and, you know, that's his day job. And then there was this real kind of touching or moving impulse that he had of, you know, trying consistently, like his, his life's work, um, to try to find uh, proof that ghosts exist and proof to the standard that would satisfy that kind of academic, um, the, the academic in him. And he grappling with, you know, being caught between these two diametrically opposed impulses. I thought, you know, again, like I don't have that experience in relation to the paranormal, but I think I can relate to, you know, wanting something to be other than it, than it is. Um, trying to massage fact into something more satisfying. So, um, you know, and again, like each of the people, well, most of the people that I speak to are incredibly intelligent, very lovely, perfectly great to hang out with. Um, and, you know, being up close to that, that kind of, I guess, cogn not cognitive dissonance, but dissonant um, approaches towards, you know, what we would like and what we're going to get was endlessly fascinating. Um, and, you know, in the case of the ghost, much scarier than I anticipated. <laughs> Well, you, you also own your own kind of, um, I, I guess, if not necessarily belief in ghosts, perhaps the familial sort of, um, you know, collective belief in ghosts that has informed your childhood that I thought was really, really interesting um, as well is sort of owned in this sense that you're sort of showing your hand here. Yeah, I mean, I like again, like I, I like there were a couple of points where I was like actually scared to be in these. Uh, possibly haunted houses uh, at midnight, more scared than I thought I would be. But my the reason that I was there, and I can't say that I believe in ghosts more now than I did when I started, but the reason that I was there uh, and drawn to kind of find one in the first place was that I think the idea of ghosts, the idea of the paranormal at a meta metaphorical level is incredibly moving and something that is universally re relevant. How does the past survive in the present? How does the past haunt the present? Those questions we've been obsessed with, whether you understand them literally or not, since, you know, the start of human uh, society. So um, all of those were kind of operatives for me while I was kind of thinking about the things that they were doing. If you've just joined us, you're listening to Backstory on Triple R. I'm Mel Cranenberg and I'm speaking with author Sarah Krasnerstein about her latest book, The Believer, Encounters with Love, Death and Faith. I always want to add life in there for that tagline as well for some reason. Um, I, I really, I want to continue to talk about the the kind of areas that you're covering in the book. We talked a bit about the paradox of the ghost hunter who uh, once wants to be scientific while at the same time seeing science as somehow um, too much like religion, which is fascinating to me, um, and also wanting proof of, of the existence of ghosts. The Creation Museum seems like an epic work of paradox um, where at once the Bible is the authority on all things and then but also they're using science to try to prove that the Bible is real. I found that extraordinarily interesting. Um, can you talk about the Creation Museum which again th that whole section on like things like uh, the, the measurements of Noah's Ark and, and stuff like that is just amazing to me in terms of paradox. I, I really loved it. 
Yeah, I mean, well, uh, the Mennonites were the ones that kind of pulled oh, it out sorry. of the yes. place existed. No, no, that's how I found, found out about it, because they had had their uh, corporate retreat there the year before um, for their uh, internet filtering business that they run. And I had, so I, you know, started the early research about it, and I couldn't, you know, get my head around the fact that these were qualified uh, scientists, so a microbiologist and a geologist, who, you know, spend their uh, professional lives trying to prove that the Earth was created in seven days and uh, well, six days, and that, you know, it's, the Earth is 6,000 years old. That seems so, again, dissonant to me. So I went and I spent time talking to them and, you know, looking at the museum itself. Um, and, again, it wasn't about mocking it or just proving it, which I think, you know, would be fairly easy. It was more trying to understand why someone would devote their life to that type of work. And what I was hearing over and over again was the Bible had to be literally true or else death didn't exist as a punishment for sin. It just existed for no explicable reason, and that went to the character of God, and God would then be unjust and bad and not a good and just God. And these were, you know, Ph.D. qualified scientists saying something that was so human and vulnerable and, you know, almost childlike, and, and, and it spoke to, you know, this childlike vulnerability that I thought was, you know, really moving, um, and ultimately what the story of that very strange, maddening place was. Yeah, look, I mean, it's. I found it so interesting in a, a kind of, you know, again, we get these juxtapositions that are so fascinating um, to think about this real fear of death that informs um, or, or fear of like a meaningless death I guess that informs this this incredible these incredible lives um, and then kind of consider Annie um, and the fact that she's teaching acceptance of it being a part of life and I almost want to I'm like look you've put them next to each other can we just smoosh them together so that they can have a have a conversation because they so need to right yeah. now. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think it's, it's like having, you know, thought about it across those stories, death, I think, is more of a stand-in for, you know, un uncertainty and lack of control and the way in which we kind of brace against it. When if we were actually more flexible in our, in our stories and more flexible in our dialogues with other people, we wouldn't need to have so much kind of... Um, you know, hardening around all of these concepts, it would actually be less scary because we would have more room to kind of hold each other and ourselves. But that's not the impulse. We don't do that. Yes. Um, I, moving along, because uh, unfortunately time is not with us, uh, yeah. I want to talk about a character that I think everyone will be so utterly moved by, and that is Lynn. Ah. Can you talk to us about Lynn? Yeah, so I met Lynn um, four months after she was released from prison, where she had been incarcerated for 34 and a half years, um, at the age of 34 and a half. So she spent exactly half her life in prison and half out, outside, and she was uh, in there for murder for killing her abusive husband uh, after he had threatened their toddler and herself many times. Um, and, again, so I see her sitting kind of at the same end of the spectrum as Annie does because, 
you know, over nearly four years of talking with Lynn, I would always just come back to this thought that if my life had turned out in that way, I would be full of rage. And she was not an angry person. Uh, she was quite religious, and, you know, I got to know her church that she went to regularly and kind of her view of God, and at first it, I couldn't understand that because of, you know, this belief that she had in a just God. But again, it was a question of her having a story about who she was and why we're here that was spacious enough to allow for the reality of deep injustice and violence and unfairness. Um, the way that she was speaking with her God was not petitionary or transactional. It was more open-faced, and it was about reaching out and connecting with others. She was just, again, like the word holy comes up. It was the same kind of privilege to be near that story and to be near her. Um, I feel like, you know, even if I've become a tiny bit stronger, um, one grain of sand's worth, it was a very fortifying experience to be near it. I really felt like this was the the story that really made me, you know, want again to be a believer on that scale. Mm. I thought that is truly what a deep belief can do for people. Uh, as you say, that um, that sense of a narrative within which you sit that makes you feel comfortable in the world with all its complexity. Isn't that really what we all want? Because, yeah. in fact, we can't change things that are beyond our control. Um, we can do what we can do um, and we can feel happy and satisfied within that. Um, that truly is something that makes me feel like this is a great life because this person can can see things this way. Um, what, what was the legacy for you? Um, of, of, of spending of time with Lynn. Yeah, I mean, I think that it was really this feeling that the external circumstances don't need to be a certain way in order for you to exercise agency over the story of your life. That your character and your time here can have the meaning that you determine it will have, and that exists independently of what may or may not happen to you uh, in the world, which I think is just as a lesson, just probably the only lesson of being alive. Um, you know, have responsibility for your life, your emotional life, the way you treat others, the way you meet each day, um, and you can do it whether you're serving. 25 years to life in prison, or whether you've been lucky enough to not even know what that might look like. So, yeah, I mean, I think also that's what Trina was saying, that's what Annie was saying. Um, yeah. Now, we, we are running out of time, so we don't have time to talk about everything in the, in the rest of this book, but I do want to touch on the UFOs, um, Jamie and Aspasia, section. Um, I'm just really fascinated by this because at the moment, of course, we're, we're looking at um, recently um, released information that there is, in fact, a, a Pentagon inquiry going on into um, the existence of... I don't think they're calling them UFOs officially anymore, but there is apparently some... That's right. Some quite credible sightings that actually are of things that fly that people don't know what they are, which I guess is really the nature of those things. For some reason, this is the area that really everyone thinks of as like total evidence of someone have taking leave of their senses is is the UFO area. It's so now such a trope of um, of being discredited, and yet weirdly enough, throughout the course of this book, this is the one area that now seems to have perhaps I don't know some shift going on with how we we look at it uh, once more. Can you can you talk about that in light of of some of the the recent 
happenings, I guess, for lack of a better word. Like, I, yeah, it's interesting because, you know, having spoken with ufologists and UFO researchers, um, and particularly uh, Rhonda and the story of Fred Valentich, the pilot that disappeared 40 years ago, uh, and what may or may not have happened to him, I, I got the sense that if you were in part, part of that community, you were a believer. And, if, and in that milieu, everybody believed, you know, or at least made room for the reasonable possibility of, um, you know, life elsewhere. And if you were not in that world, you were everybody thought that was very silly and would make fun of it. Um, but, you know, kind of similar to the ghost stories, you know, when I tell people I'm writing about this, they kind of have a chuckle, and then they want to share something that they saw once. And so that, that dissonance that we all seem to carry was interesting. And, you know, this idea of are we alone, I thought, again, at a matter of metaphorical level, was worth investigating. But, you know, I'm not sure that the sad thing that I've learned is that no matter what comes out, people will probably massage it into their pre-existing paradigm. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, I mean, there there seems little doubt that there are uh, observed phenomena, but who the hell knows what it is. It's that wonderful, illogical leap, I guess, that it is, you know, potentially aliens that, that I think everyone is so fascinated by. I, I want to finish up this um, this conversation by talking about really the the, the final uh, the, you know the final piece in all of the puzzles, which is you. Um, you do wind yourself into um, your stories in a very subtle way. You've done it in the trauma cleaner. You kind of pop in and out, a kind of guest star in your own journalism. Um, but it is a delightful inclusion. It's something that you know I, I gather is you know maybe gives us a feel of what your interview style is like as well, where you're exposing a little bit of yourself in order to sort of, um, you know, get a rapport with your uh, with your interview subjects, um, but also um, your readers and, by extension, um, connecting with the shared humanity of all concerned. Um, talk about that aspect of things and how you kind of work that into those those texts. Yeah, I mean, I, again, like the, the nonfiction that I like reading the most has those kind of first-person elements. I think, you know, at a, at a more global level, it's the most honest way of factual writing because no matter, you know, how what perspective we choose, how impartial it looks, it's always a subjective, partial, selective process of filtering certain things in and out of, of the final product. So I think if I can give the reader a kind of sense of not just who I am, but why I'm there, why I'm interested in the story, then, you know, I've made my biases clear enough that they'll, you know, be able to make up their make up their own minds about, you know, the degree to which they want to follow my opinion. Um, And, you know, I, I do think that is part of the story. I think, you know, I've said before that, you know, in cold blood would be much more interesting if we knew why Capote was there in the first place and what he was thinking about walking through Kansas. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that's, that's part of why I do it. But it's also, I think, in The Believer, kind of this, the seventh story is my interest in the first place and trying to kind of get closer to people that I have nothing in common with. Why would I be trying to do that? Mm. Um, and hopefully, if, um, you know, the reader sees me trying to see myself or kind of get closer to what appears very far away, then they might, they might come along with me. 
or not. <laughs> More the the recently departed uh, Janet Malcolm rather than Truman Capote in that in that case. <laughs> yeah. Thank you, Sarah Christmasine, so much. I have so many more things I want to ask you or talk to you about, but unfortunately time does not extend um, beyond, you know, what we have of it, which is an unfortunate thing in this case. Thank you so much uh, for joining me today on Backstory. Thanks for having me. That was Sarah Krasnerstein, author of The Believer, Encounters with Love, Death and Faith. Independently yours, Triple R. 102.7. Hi, this is Mel Cranenberg. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Backstory, a weekly radio show exploring books, stories, the craft of writing and the people behind the lines. Backstory is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Wednesday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via the Triple R website, Facebook, Instagram or Twitter.